that word can come alive to us today, we dare to pray that you will help us so to hear and understand that we may go out to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I suppose as a male Anglican vicar who's reached the age of 80, I'm proving something or other. They always said that the, uh, the secret of, of male Anglican vicars living a long time is that for six days of the week we're invisible and one day of the week we're incomprehensible. And that is what makes us alive. I shall try to buck the trend today, at least in the latter regard, and be comprehensible. We come towards the end of uh, a little series of Wish You Were There. I'm not sure how many people send postcards from holidays nowadays. They take their lap computers onto the beach and do it properly. But in the old days, uh, we sent our postcards. My mother, we, we only had occasional holidays when I was a lad, but occasionally went away for a week's holiday, wakes week, as we called it in Lancashire, and we went off for a holiday. My mother, as soon as she arrived on, on the Saturday, bought a sheaf of postcards and the, po and the, te and the uh, stamps to go with them and started writing as soon as the week began uh, and telling what a wonderful week we had. We hadn't even started, but she wrote and told them what a great time we're having. Uh, and off went the cards. And on the next Saturday, she met all the same people she sent the cards to. Uh, it's also a rather waste of time, but there you are. We never sent cards from holiday, I think, ever. I don't seem to remember we did. And if we had, I certainly wouldn't have sent a card to you saying, wish you were here. <laughs> That's why you went on holiday. We were glad you weren't there. <laughs> but always glad to be back. Well, now, I'm quite sure our Lord Jesus would never have sent a card saying, wish you were here. And particularly in this part of Matthew 8, which you've now returned, after those on necessary words of mine, you're back there to Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 8. Because our Lord in this particular section was actually trying to get away from the crowds, to get the disciples together. But if you look uh, at verse 34, uh, they were there. The whole town went out to meet Jesus. Uh, there was no shortage of people. Uh, but it came to a rather sad ending, didn't it? They were all there, and they said to Jesus, please clear off. We don't want you. Thank you very much. Rather different from some of the other reactions that you get here in verse uh, uh, 27, the reaction, as you saw last week, when uh, our Lord stilled the storm, then they were amazed and they asked, what kind of man was this? Is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. They were glad to be amazed, so long as it didn't disturb their interests, which is what happened at the gathering demoniac. And again in chapter 9, next week, when you get to verse 8 of chapter 9, when the crowd saw this uh, paralyzed man starting to walk, they were amazed and they were filled with awe. Interesting word. The word awesome has come back into our vocabulary of recent years. Have you noticed that? I remember meeting a man who told me he just had uh, with his friends an awesome pizza. Can you imagine what an awesome pizza is like? <laughs> Even an ordinary pizza is not, is not my scene, but an awesome one. But you can understand what it meant. But it, it was something remarkable and wonderful. The amazement and the awe. And why were the crowds like that? Because Jesus was very different. The word authority comes there in chapter 9, verse 8. And that was what this was all about. He was a man who showed authority. In Mark's version, it says that he had authority and he taught them with authority, not like the scribes. And his authority was seen in his preaching in his calling of disciples, in his healing, 
uh, and in his power over nature. All that, and not least, and our theme for today, is authority over demons, a rather remarkable one. I've only in my ministry, a long ministry, I've only once been involved in an exorcism. Uh, I once preached in a church in Manchester, where the vicar then became Bishop of Chester in due course, having been in the meantime, rector of all souls, Langham Place, just before Hugh Palmer, Hugh Palmer went down. And Michael Bourne was vicar of this church in Manchester. And as I preached, every time I mentioned the name of Jesus, a lady screamed. It was the most awesome sort of thing. That was awesome. That really was. Uh, and not nicely awesome. Because you, I found myself, I must mention it again, as soon as I mentioned Jesus, she screamed. It was extraordinary. And we did take her into the vestry afterwards, and neither has ever done anything like this before. But we did feel there was something very unusual, and we prayed, and we did cast out a demon. I've never done it since. I don't know where Michael Bourne has. Uh, I remember ringing him up and writing back to him, and apparently this lady, for some reason, had a a strange history. She dabbled in all kinds of spiritist things, and it was an unusual situation. and, And God seemed to have answered prayer, and she was different. But that's never happened since. But when our Lord was there in that day and the Son of God was around and evil was, was, was aware the hour was come. You see, it talks in verse 29 about the appointed time. The demons knew that their lot was up. Jesus was coming to deal with them decisively and so there was something very unusual about that. So I've never had other demons and I doubt that it's very easy for us today not to think there's anything here for us because, well, that's not us. I did have one student girl who came once to ask me, would I cast out, she, got a, she believed she got a demon of laziness, would I cast out her demon of laziness? I said, no, I'm fair, I can't, but I will buy an alarm clock. And she was very upset about it. <laughs> she went out. Because I was quite right, there is no such thing as a demon of laziness, but there are lazy people. Wouldn't it be lovely if I could just say a little prayer and she'd never be lazy anymore, she'd rise at 7 o'clock and jump to her part-time every day. Come on, live in the real world. How about a bit of discipline that Jesus does talk about? So let's come to see what is our Lord wanting to say to us. For here's our Lord demonstrating his authority over demons in a very dramatic story. Now, it's very interesting. The very first sermon I ever preached at the ripe age of 18. I was 18, so that's over 60 years ago. And uh, the RE teacher at our school decided to have a school's service. And since I was head boy and he knew I went to school, I uh, went to church, it was my job to preach. I'd never preached before. And for some reason, I shall never know why, I preached on the Gadarene demoniac in Mark's version, Mark chapter 5, which is a much more dramatic version. I wish I'd been asked to preach on that. It's a more dramatic story, but it's the same story. And I preached on it. Now, why, I cannot remember. What I do know is that I allegorized it awfully. It was a terrible sermon. And I kept it for a long time just to encourage me. I'd improved a bit on what I was at the age of 18. Um, But that was a story. I I recognized then that, well, maybe uh, there was a similarity. And I want to try to press you today that there are certain signs of the demon possession that have got something to say to us. Now, let's get something out of the way. In Matthew's version, there are two people. You've you've seen that. There are two. Now, some of the liberal scholars get all very upset. Matthew has two, and Mark says there was only one. Now, you have to have a strange kind of mind to find a problem there. For if there was two, there was one. You do know two equals one plus one. And uh, Mark tells the story of one of the people who had a a very special case. It's amazing how many people want want to demolish the Bible for no obvious reason 
Of course, there were two there. Matthew was there. He was in the crowd that watched it. But one of them was particularly dramatic, and that's the one that Mark, who was inspired by Peter, remembers. All very straightforward. But as we look at this story, we get an honest account of triumph and tragedy. And we have three signs. We have a a, a sign of need, we have a sign of power, and we have a sign of division. Sign of need, sign of power. That comes under triumph. The story of the casting out of the demon is a wonderful story, but it doesn't end there. And if we're going to learn a lesson today, we're actually going to learn more, probably, of what happened later on. When the dramatic event had happened, and they said, please, we don't want any more. Will you go? Do you realize, do you actually pray for God to be at work in reviving power? I do. Do you dare to think of the consequence to you if it, if it happened? Well, years and years ago, we, we discovered that our church was insured against an act of God. Isn't it marvelous that a church is insured against an act of God? But anyway, uh, we hope there are plenty of acts of God uh, which we're not insured against. That is, I hope you want it to happen, but that's how it all ends. Triumph moves for tragedy. Now, please remember, these are signs. No, it isn't like any of here is likely ever to be possessed by a demon. I believe when God's at work in a, in, a, in a society, no, we don't get it like that. But a sign is there which says something very dramatic. A sign points you on. A sign doesn't stay here. You know, when you walk to the countryside, we see a sign which is a hazardage five miles. We don't sort of kiss the signpost. We walk in the direction it points to. And this story actually tells us where we should be pointing. What about the need? And what about the power? And what about the division? Okay. The sign of need. Two signs, really. Man in his desperate need and the world in its depressing remedy. Man in his desperate need. Mark says he was a man in an, un- in an evil spirit. And uh, because he was like that, he was antisocial, he was self-harming. You can read the story in Mark's verse. And here it says they were so violent, these two men, that uh, people were frightened to pass that way. End of verse 28. So violent that no one could pass that way. Do we hear echoes? I don't imagine any of those uh, yobbos who were around about in our, in our cities recently, destroying everything in sight, were demon-possessed. They didn't have a demon of whatever. But I guess if you'd been around, you'd thought they were so violent, you wouldn't have passed that way, you'd have kept away. There's a very real sense in which this is so dramatically true. Did you find it strange, strange to watch the House of Commons sitting in judgment on these riots? And people who who had a more sophisticated way of stealing were very judgmental on people who did it rather more dramatically. Uh, There's not a lot of differences there really. Oh, I know many members of the House of Commons were decent people. But it did seem odd to me as I watched the debate. To think that here, there the demon was both ways. And the challenge comes that man in his desperate need, we haven't found the answer. And there needs to be something that will change. What about the world and its depressing answer? Look here, in, in the story, they, there was, they, they, they were coming from the tombs, the two demon-possessed men. They were walking around in death. In Mark's version, it says that they'd often been bound with chains, 
but nobody could hold them. They could break the chains. Have you added up all the theories as to how we're going to sort out our society? You've heard all the ideas that we've got to do from different politicians and sociologists. And have you ever thought that somewhere down the line this is the unique moment for the gospel? That there is no way we're going to change our society by legislation or by better social theories, but by changing people from within. And it so happens that we've got the only message that can change people from within. And if ever there was a cry for spiritual awakening, if ever there was a moment for the church to stand up and say, we have the answer, now is the hour. Sadly, I don't hear it too often. So come to what was there, the sign of need. Where's the sign of power? The crucial moment is our Lord arrives on the scene. Here in verse uh, 28, he arrives at the other side. He arrives up in the north. It was a northern area, uh, and it was, it was in a territory where there was uh, uh, mixed people. And that's why there were pigs being looked after, which wouldn't be happening in a normal Jewish society. And at that crucial moment, at that crucial moment, Jesus enters. Now in Mark's version, there's a very important moment. In Mark's version, Jesus asks this demon-possessed man, what is your name? I was preaching last Sunday night. Now, unfortunately these days, people tend not to come morning and evening, so you, you, if you weren't here last, I'm not going to give you a summary of my sermon last Sunday evening, but I do. I was preaching in Psalm 75, where there's a very odd thing in Psalm 75, where it says in the introduction, uh, it was uh, to the tune of do not destroy. We have a little meditation of how you can have a tune called do not destroy. And I propounded a theory, which I shall simply tell you, that actually they had some full-scap editions of these tunes, and somebody had put at the top of them, do not destroy, which is a very reasonable thing to do. And, and somebody, having read it, thought the tune was called do not destroy. And so perpetuated in history, we have the tune of do not destroy. And you say to yourself, what on earth has that got to do with Matthew chapter 8? Oh, we're getting there. Because Jesus, when he asked the question, what is your name? If you know your prayer book at all, the oldest here who remember the book of common prayer, there was a thing called the catechism. Remember the catechism? And the first question of the catechism, when you're preparing people for a confirmation, is, what is your name? Now, if you, anybody remembers 1662, because I knew it, because I, I remember asking my vicar an awkward question. I love to be awkward when I was a youngster. And uh, it says, what is your name? The answer is N or M. I remember that, N or M. So I asked my vicar preparing for confirmation, why, why, sir, does it say N or M? Oh, well, he said it means the boy's name or the girl's name. So I said, why does it put M or F? Stop, stop asking awkward questions, really, will we? And uh, it was only years later I discovered the answer. Do you want to know the answer? You're going to get it anyway. N or M, it was a printer's mistake of 17, in the 17th century. It really was originally N-O-M, which, as you well know, is short for nomina, which in Latin means names. Now, you, you've all got that, haven't you? And so it originally was N-O-M, and so ever since those days, the 1662 carries a printer's error, N or M. So you'll go away not the least bit better for it, but at least you've known something you didn't know when you came this morning, unless you've heard me say it before. But when Jesus said, what is your name to this man, or one of these men, he answered in Mark chapter 5, my name is Legion, for we are many. His only name was the power of evil in him. 
Friends, this is a very important question. For if in fact we're going to allow our Lord to do something in our lives, he wants first of all to say, who are you? Who are you? I never watch these programs on television where they go back into your pedigree and you discover where you come from. I'd be frightened to death to try that out for me, so I'm very happy not to know. But they want to question, who are you? Where do you come from? What's your background? What is your name? Who are you? And isn't it desperately important that we can get people to recognize that they're individuals who matter to God and the gospel is the only thing left that will make people recognize that God cares for them as individuals. He died for them on the cross, our Savior, because we're, we matter to him. Who are you? And then comes two things in this dramatic moment. Exclamation, expulsion. Look at the story. Wet, what did they say, 29? What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? The demons recognized who Jesus was. They had no doubt at all he was Son of God. And they knew the time was going to come when the hour was up. And in Luke's version of the same story, it says, will you send us into the abyss? Which in Revelation chapter 9 is the place where Satan reigns, which one day will be finally defeated. But at the moment, wherever evil is allowed to have sway, it is part of the celestial battle going on all the time. And whether you look to break down of law and order in our own society, for God is a God of order, when you see the law and order breaking down in our society, you see the battles going on in the Middle East, you recognize that we're living in a world, this is just one part of the battle that's going on all the time, in the heavenly realm. And one day it will all be over. But here you see the demons recognize. Just look at that phrase, what do you want with us? The actual Greek means, what is it between you and us? What have we got in common? There's one place where that's used. This is very interesting. In John chapter 2 verse 4, exactly the same phrase is used when Jesus says to his mother, when she asked him to turn water into wine or to get some more wine for them, why do you involve me, mother? And the Greek is exactly the same. What is it between you and me? We, we're thinking differently. We're not living in the same world. And this exclamation that comes out from evil is a reminder that the world and Jesus are set on a collision course then eventually and inevitably that collision will come to its climax at the cross. Please, I hope you do realise what's going on in our society is not just a matter of social deprivation. These things are important, of course they are. But there are far deeper issues going on. And that's why it comes back to where we are. There's a spiritual battle. And the only way you win in a spiritual battle is spiritual weapons of prayer, the word of God and worship. Exclamation. And secondly, expulsion. Then comes this moment when Jesus sends out the demons, expels the demons. When we did that in that vestry in Manchester, we just prayed for the demon to go. And in the grace of God, it seemed to happen. With a scream, it, it ended. But here, the, this man needed some outside demonstration that it had happened. And so the, the swine were 
the ones who received the demons off they went. And I remember again with my poor old vicar when I was preparing for confirmation, have you any questions, Philip? Oh, yes. Why did Jesus uh, allow the demons to go into the pigs? What was, you know? And again, I got told off of being awkward. But I, I, it is a question people ask. Is it that he doesn't care about animals? Is it just that, well, they shouldn't have been having pigs if they were honest Jews because that's against the Jewish law? I think all it is, simply is that for Jesus, this man's soul was more important than a whole herd of pigs. And if it disturbed the ex, the commercial interests of those people, so be it. What mattered was this man's soul. Oh yes, the Bible tells us one day the whole nature will share his victory in Romans 8. But at this moment, this man needs to know that he was now free. And uh, the swine went down and were destroyed, and he was free. What that says to us, I think quite simply, no, we're not demon-possessed. It may well be in our lives, there's no need for some terribly dramatic event to happen in our lives. But always, if we want God to deal with us spiritually, it will mean somewhere down the line. It's no compromise, it's not allowed. It's not just less of this. It's death to sin, Romans 6, that we're to die to sin and live to righteousness. I mentioned last week when I preached the thanksgiving to John Stott, who was so much my mentor. John Stott preached the most amazing series of sermons at the Keswick Convention, a very dramatic uh, series, which you can find still printed in Men Made New, New Made Men. Uh, John Stott's exposition of Romans 5 to 8, which was a transforming power in our Keswick Convention history, but that's a whole subject in itself. But back of that great exposition was a reminder that there is something so dramatic in the conversion experience when it's real that we're dealing with sin and it means a battle with sin and death to sin. Life to living to righteousness. That's the challenge. And so there needs to be an expulsion in our lives, not just a little bit better, a little bit more time of prayer, an occasional visit to church, but something dramatic that will turn our world upside down. There's the triumph. Sign of need, true of all of us. Sign of power, I hope true of you. Let me look at the tragedy briefly before I end. See, the Bible's very honest. The end of the story is not the nice, exciting story. It's that little picture in verse 34. Don't you find it pathetic? The whole town came to meet Jesus. They'd heard what he'd done. This man had been changed. But please go. They reported all this, including what had happened to the demon possessed. In Mark's version it said, and they told them about the pigs as well. That's what hurt. Oh, not because of some animal love. Come on, let's get it right. It was their livelihood. This matter disturbed their means of getting on. Please leave us. Just two moments here in this sign of division. A moment of terror. A moment of testimony. Let me read in Mark's version this lovely verse. I, I love this verse because it's so, it's so challenging. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 15, it's the same story. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were 
Wait for it. If I've been writing a story, amazed, excited, delighted, thrilled, and they were afraid. That was the honest account. They saw a man who had been violent, who had been a danger to society, and he'd been chained, and he was sitting, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Why? Because, you see, they recognize that this man is different. If he can change this man, then perhaps he can want to change me. Perhaps he wants to turn my life upside down. And there are many people who want a Jesus whom they can keep at arm's length. They want a Jesus who will uh, be there for a convenience when we're in need, but please, Lord, don't disturb me. Don't ask me to change my life. Don't ask me to change what I do with my money, my time, my relationships. Please don't ask me to stop that which I know you think is wrong. Please leave me alone. Why did I read, ask them to read Psalm 106, which we've read for our first reading? There's always a reason behind these readings. The Psalm 106 that was read to us, that Gilbert read to us, is a story of what God did in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a story of the drama of wonderful acts of God right through the Red Sea and through the wilderness. And then comes verse 15. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease upon them. The old version says, I love the old version, he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. What was the request? They wanted in the wilderness, please, we're fed up with the manna, please get us some food. So uh, he gave them some food, and they ate this food, all these quails that were flying past, uh, and they got their food, and they ate their food to their fill, and they got a disease in the process, and thousands died. What they wanted was prosperity. And what they got was death. What did you pray for, for you and for your generation? What do you pray for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren as old as me? What do you pray for? You pray that they may be prosperous, that the world around might go well for them, they always do well? Or do you pray that they be spiritually alive? Because if you pray for certain things, God may answer your prayer and send leanness into their soul. I believe that's a great challenge for all of us. Now, interesting, that's the moment of terror. What about the moment of testimony? These men who'd been changed, of course, went off telling everything. And in Mark's version, Jesus said to the man, the one who, he re who was particularly delivered, he said to this man, the man said, please, can't I go with you, Jesus? No, he said. Go home to your family, and tell them what the Lord has done for you. The Lord meeting God. And what did he do? It says he went away and told everything Jesus had done for him. You see, the demons, and the demon-possessed man had no doubt who Jesus was. The Lord. And so he was sent out to give a testimony. And where did he live? He lived in a place called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, a largely pagan area. He went there and he told them, and it's interesting, two chapters later in Mark's version, Jesus is there and he heals a deaf man. And in chapter 8, he's there again 
and he feeds the 4,000. And because this one man delivered, told what Jesus had done for him, here was a people ready to respond. May I ask, where are we in the story? <clears throat> You've, we start this, the, the series was, wish you were here. Where is here for you? Wish you were here? I wonder where you'd be in this story. Are we telling how much the Lord has done for us? Or are we saying, honestly, Lord, leave me alone. I've had enough. I'm comfortable as I am. And the intriguing thing about that story is that Jesus wouldn't force them. If they asked him to leave, he left. He never forces any man. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus loved him and he wanted him and the rich young ruler turned his back on Jesus and Jesus did nothing to stop him. So, where are we? Well, very soon, the holiday PCs will be a thing of the past once more. A new session lies ahead of us. We've got the church graft. We've got the challenge here. A new opportunity for witness. A new danger of turning our back. I preached my first sermon at the age of 17. I had no thought that that wouldn't be my last sermon. I never thought this was my life. I still have somewhere in my possession a letter I wrote to the BBC offering my services as a cricket commentator. Would you believe it? I had the audacity to do it. Uh, filed away somewhere. Filed away. And then later on, when I got an Oxbridge degree... Uh, I decided I'd write to the civil service because if you had an Oxbridge degree, as long as you could sign your name legibly, you've got a job anywhere. It was all, it was all very posh and ridiculous. But uh, I, I did that. And then in a church in Oxford, the Lord said, stop it. I want you to preach. And I went back and I made my decision that night that I was going to preach. That was my life. Mark will tell you, I sent her a letter. She was my girlfriend then, and my parents, and my vicar. And the only one who was pleased at that stage, Mark's been happy since, but the only one pleased at that stage was my vicar. He thought it was a good idea. My dad, dad said, what a waste of an Oxford education. There you are. Uh, and uh, my mother was just didn't think her son could be a vicar. But I knew that moment I had to make a response. In an odd kind of way, what I want to say as I finish is, I don't didn't make appeals when I was vicar here very much. I think I might make an appeal for some young men here to pick up the baton. A desperate urgency. The church in general, the Church of England in particular, is desperate for men who will preach with conviction and passion and trust in Scripture. You don't know how bad it is, friends. Here you are this morning and there are 108 on a house party away on top of this lot. We're living in a lovely little world of our own. And out there it isn't like this. And it could just be that there are some people here, some men here who will be hear that call to go out and serve. When, do you remember, some of you remember Gavin McGrath, who was my colleague for a number of years. When uh, uh, I retired, he sent me a lovely little sort of illustrated thing which was uh, a comment of Richard Baxter. I preached... I was never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. 
And he was thankful for my preaching. He just wanted me to keep going. Well, I will. I will. But I'm concerned about the future. And I long for the... I thank God there are so many in this church and elsewhere who do preach with passion and conviction, but there aren't enough. It will make my day if somebody a few weeks' time will tell me that here this morning on this service, which is now due to end, it should be any. I forgot myself at 10 o'clock, never mind. Uh, uh, that uh, it's at 20 past 11. Um, that somebody here might feel it is your moment of saying, yes, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Now, I'm going to blame Peter Turnbull for all this because last Sunday night, the hymn after the sermon I preached was Jesus the name, I over all. He's done it again. And I'm, I've preached, preached again and I've got to preach, we're going to sing the same hymn as we sang last Sunday night. And I, I'm sure he's some very good liturgical reason for repeating it this morning. And certainly the, the, the devil's fear and fly fits in well. But I simply want to say that when you sing this song, about the wonderful way of preaching Behold the Lamb. No, for most of you, you're not going to be preachers. I do hope you'll be those who will support the preachers to preach Behold the Lamb, and that you will, wherever you can, like that demon-possessed man, tell people what Jesus has done for you, which preachers can only help you to do what you alone can do. But maybe some will want to say, this is my call to serve, to preach. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing Jesus, the name I overall. Let me pray. We thank you, Father, for your power in changing lives. We thank you that in, in a world where there's so much desperate need, you can still, by your Spirit, turn people round. Lord, help us not to turn our backs on you, but to obey you, and in any way in which you give us strength and opportunity, to cry, behold the Lamb, to point people to Jesus. May that be our whole ambition, to live and work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Charles Wesley again, Jesus the name, high over all.